Scripture reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 23 through 33. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. But he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose. Each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, son of Shimeah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king take this thing to heart, to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, Lord, indeed all, all we have is you. We confess with our lips that you are more than enough. Father, we ask that in this time you might open the eyes of faith in each of us, your people, that we might behold your son Jesus ever more clearly, that our faith might be strengthened, that our love might abound. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I... I will go ahead and confess that this sermon probably is going to make a little bit more sense if you had listened to last week's or if you were here last week's, but I'm going to do everything in my power to kind of catch you up a little bit, right? Last week, we really considered the entirety of chapter 13, and what we find in chapter 13 is this gruesome, heinous, awful story of Amnon. Uh, It's really a story of assault and revenge. Um, There's stronger word that's used for assault, Um, but I know we have kids in here and I don't want to use that, but essentially the story goes like this. Um, David's firstborn son, Amnon, desired his half-sister, Tamar, desired her physically and um, schemed and plotted his way into forcing himself upon her and taking her and laying with her. Um, Absalom, David's third-born son, from that moment rightfully hated Amnon and despised him, seeking justice for what took place with his sister Tamar. David, the king, whose family has committed these acts of um, debauchery, 
is simply angry. That's all we see in the text. David's angry. We don't know at who. We don't see him doing anything whatsoever. We just know that he's angry. Absalom's angry too, but Absalom instead compiled this plan that we read to avenge his sister. And so really we we looked at the, the, the point of all of this being is to show us that Israel's biggest problem was not outside of Israel, right? That's not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem was themselves. So, so we saw at the end of chapter 12, David's went out, he conquered all the nations, but he's failed to conquer the sin in his own household, even in his own heart. So Israel's threat, biggest threat is herself, not the nations, both individually and corporately. This morning, I want to propose to you something else that um, I believe this passage teaches us very clearly. We're really returning to this passage to take up that same thread, kind of continue to follow it out. But something struck me as I considered this sheep shearing festival that we encounter and all the sheep shearing festivals we encounter in the word. And I believe that we see another problem very clearly in Israel. I believe what we see in this text is Israel has another problem. And that problem is that Absalom is more righteous than David. Absalom is more righteous than David. Now you will probably, uh, those of you particularly who know the end of the story of 2 Samuel are going to buck a little bit at that and think, okay, are you sure that's the point? Well, let me show you how this is the case and why I believe this is the case. So I believe this passage we saw last week really divides into two parts, both recording the assault of Tamar by Amnon, as we previously said, and the revenge for Tamar on Amnon by Absalom. And so the passage we read this morning, verses 22 through 33, again records the vengeance that we briefly considered last week. Let me present to you exhibit A for uh, the proposal that Absalom is more righteous than David. Exhibit A will be this, the comparison from this story to the David and Nabal event. The comparison of this story to the David and Nabal event. Now, I know it's really weird when you pick up 2 Samuel and you don't preach all the way through 1 Samuel, but hopefully you've read 1 Samuel and you're familiar a little bit. If not, let me tell you what happens in 1 Samuel 25, which is where we find this story. David's hiding out. He's hiding out from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, obviously, and he's in the wilderness. And so he sends some men to Nabal who has come for a sheep shearing festival. Um, It is a celebration, by the way, a time when you would expect someone to be generous. And so David, having protected Nabal's men, comes to Nabal and he asks for favor from Nabal regarding David and his men. Instead, Nabal insults David and his men and sends them away. When David hears the news of Nabal's insult, um, he hears the news, he says this, take up your swords. He heads to avenge the insult against him on the head of Nabal, and it says on the head of Nabal's entire house. But if you know the story, Abigail intervenes. She keeps David from committing this blood guilt, and of course, the evil is eventually returned upon Nabal's head by the Lord himself, and David celebrates that. So you take up these two events surrounding this sheep shearing feast. And remember we talked about last week, those parallels, they invite us to compare the stories. And so let's do that. Both Nabal and Amnon have their hearts merry with wine right before they're struck down. 
In both, David hears news immediately following the death of the guilty. In chapter 25, David hears of Nabal's death and it's followed by thanksgiving for the vengeance of the Lord. In our passage, David hears the news that all of his sons had died, followed by mourning. Vengeance and blood guilt are a theme of both stories. And so if we compare these two closely, it's quite interesting. And in 1 Samuel 25, I believe we probably would say David's, David's a little bit rash in his response here, right? He's insulted, and so his response is, fellas, get your swords. We're, gonna, we're not going to kill just Nabal, but his entire household. Interestingly, in our own passage, when David hears of the assault of his very own daughter, he says nothing. Or if he does, it's not recorded. He's angry, that's it. On the other hand, in 2 Samuel 13, Absalom is patient, not rash in his response. He does not immediately say to his servants, take up your sword, let's go find Amnon. Instead, he says nothing good or evil to his brother Amnon. He waits patiently, calculating. In 1 Samuel 25, David attempts to avenge an insult. Here in chapter 13, Absalom is avenging assault. David plans on killing all the males in Nabal's house in true Simeon and Levi fashion, you might say, for the insult he received from the mouth of Nabal. Absalom only kills the guilty party, Amnon. Consider this. David is saved from blood guilt by a woman. Absalom incurs blood guilt for the sake of a woman. David prays God for returning the evil of Nabal upon his own head. But David laments that Absalom has returned the evil of Amnon on his own head. The question is, when we compare stories like that, does it really have any sort of impact on the way we interpret this passage? Well, I really think it should. Listen, we can all agree. Should Absalom have taken vengeance into his own hands? Was that a right thing to do? No, it wasn't. Is it possible that even so, there is a bigger moral failure staring us right in the face here? Or or let me ask it this way. At the end of chapter 13... Would it be right for David to say of Absalom that he is more righteous than I? That brings us into the next exhibit I'll enter into evidence to to support the thesis that Absalom is more righteous than David. And that is Genesis 38. The comparison with this account to the account of Judah and another Tamar. Genesis 38. What happens there? Well... Like David, Judah in Genesis 38 has a son's problem. He has three sons at the beginning of the story. His first son is struck dead because he's wicked in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, his second son is given to his first son's wife, widow now, Tamar. In order to fulfill the obligation of the son, in order to continue the name of the firstborn son through Tamar. He is to lay with her and cause her to bear children. Instead, as the Bible says, he goes into her and spills his seed on the ground. This is evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord strikes him down also. 
Two sons down, one to go. Judah has one son left. And so fearing for the life of his son, he sends Tamar away dressed in the garments of widowhood to remain at her father's house destitute until the time when Judah's third son is ready to be given. Now, of course, Judah actually has no intention of ever sending his third son to her. So Tamar realizes this and takes matters into her own hands. Judah's not going to act. So Tamar will. What does she do? She dresses up like a harlot, goes to the local deity and plays the role of cult prostitute. Judah, on his way to another sheep shearing festival, by the way, encounters Tamar. He's deceived by Tamar, goes into her, lacks the cash to pay, so he offers her a down payment. He gives her his staff, his cord, and a signet. Those signs of royalty, and he, he hands them to Tamar, and Judah, after going into her, attends this sheep-shearing festival. When he eventually sends money by the hands of a servant to pay his debt that he owes to this woman, she is nowhere to be found. So they ask the locals who respond with, I have no idea what you're talking about. There's not usually a harlot there. So Judah says, well, let her keep the signet, the cord, and the staff, right? Lest we look like fools if we continue to follow Lo and behold, Tamar turns up pregnant. That's a problem for Tamar. Why? Because she was expected to remain a widow and Judah's third son was ready until Judah's third son was ready to be given to her. So this, on Tamar's account, is considered adultery, sexual immorality. So they ask Judah, Judah, what should we do with Tamar? She's become pregnant and Judah gives his judgment in regards to these things. He says she should be stoned. Put to death. So Tamar brings out the cord, the staff, and the signet. She sends them by the hand of a messenger to Judah and says, The father of this child is the owner of these items. To which Judah responds in Genesis 38, 26, She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. Now, Deception's wrong, right? We'd all agree with that. And yet, Tamar deceives. Surely prostitution is wrong, but Tamar prostitutes herself. Surely cultic practices leading to local deities is always prohibited in the scriptures. But Tamar plays the role of a cult harlot. Surely taking matters into her own hand is not usually what we uphold For the exemplary action of God's people. But the punchline for this narrative is Judah saying that Tamar is more righteous than I. You remember David's response? See, Judah failed to discharge his duty to Tamar by giving her a son. David failed to discharge his duty to give Tamar justice. David has failed to discharge his duty to Tamar to either give her his son, whether it will be in marriage or in death. David, like Judah, has greater regard for his son than he does Tamar. And more importantly, David has greater regard for his son than he does the word of the Lord. So is it possible that David should be saying by the end of 2 Samuel 13, Absalom is more righteous than I? Since I did not give death or justice to my son Amnon? All right, what's the point in all of this? The the point is, David isn't simply dealing with some family problems here. 
right? Because as we read chapter 13, we kind of just get sucked into to Amnon and Absalom. We think this story is really all about them. David's kind of quiet and we think that's not good. But Absalom and Amnon, that's where the action's at. They are the problem, but that's not the point of the author. David is the problem, See, the focus may be on the actions of Amnon and Absalom, but the conflict at the heart of this narrative is David. It's his lack of discernment. It's his failure to his duty to act righteously and justly. This is the problem in the story, and this is what needs to be resolved. See, the people who hear this They understand that what they actually need here is a better king. If this is the head, you might say, then how sick the body must be. There's another thing this passage reveals to us, though. Not simply that Absalom is more righteous than David, which hopefully I've proven to you through the text. But that Israel, what they really need is a true and better Joshua. What do I mean by that? How in the world do we bring in Joshua in this? Okay, we're in 2 Samuel 13. We've already looked at 1 Samuel, which I get. It had the same name. But then we went to Genesis 38. Now we're talking about Joshua. That's a whole other book. How do we get this? Well, think about this. Israel does need a true and better Joshua. And look again at our passage in verse 28. Did this strike anybody when you were reading it this week? Verse 28 says, Now Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Ring a bell with anybody? Sound familiar to you? Those aren't the exact words, but they're very similar to what we find in Joshua 1.9, aren't they? We love that text. Have I not commanded you, Joshua, the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Absalom sure does sound a lot like Yahweh speaking to Joshua here, doesn't he? And I'll be honest, when when that first clicked, when I first read that, I, I went to Joshua thinking, you know what, that makes sense. Because what Absalom's doing here is he's usurping the prerogative of Yahweh in his vengeance. So, so here he sounds like God because he's playing the role of God. Ugh, Absalom, how dare you? But then I realized that's not the point. Uh, what the author's doing here is he's expounding on an entirely different problem. Remember 2 Samuel 5? Remember that David has already clearly been portrayed as a new Joshua, as the true and better Joshua? If you remember, 2 Samuel 5, 2 clearly alludes to Numbers chapter 27. When Moses asked for someone to replace him, he uses the language of needing someone to lead them out and bring them in. He asked for a shepherd, and all of those same words were applied to David when he's anointed king over Israel in 2 Samuel 5. And if you think about it in the thread of biblical history, remember that First and Second Samuel, they're presented as the solution to the problem presented by the Joshua and Judges story. What do we find in Joshua and Judges? Well, in Joshua, we find that God's people are finally brought into the promised land after many years with, with Joshua as their head. He's the servant of the Lord. And, and under Joshua's lead, Israel secures the land. In fact, Joshua's book ends by saying, all the promises of God have been fulfilled. Not one has not come to pass, such as we have the legacy of Joshua. But then there's a problem. Joshua dies. 
So you get to Judges. And what's the lesson of the book of Judges? Israel, without a head, is not healthy. (laughs) They need a new Joshua. I mean, Judges are good, but Judges, like Joshua, keep dying. And as soon as the judge dies, which is a problem in and of itself, the people act even more wicked than before. With each judge, there's limited peace, but with the death of the judge, there's even greater sin. And so the sin problem isn't being dealt with. Samuel, in a sense, is the solution to that very problem. David is the answer of Samuel to that problem. David and his house, they are meant to respond to what we see in Judges. And so when the reader hears Absalom's speech to his servants, echoing the Lord's speech to his servant Joshua... I think we're supposed to remember this is exactly what David is supposed to be. If the head is going to lead the people in the land, if there's going to be success, if we're going to leave judges behind and recover Joshua, there must be this Joshua 1 mindset in the man of God, in the head of the nation, the king of Israel. Think about what the Lord says to Joshua in Joshua 1. Let's read it again starting in verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. By the way, this is also communicated in verse 32 of our text, where it says, Then Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my Lord suppose they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. That is... From the mouth of Absalom. Absalom appointed it, and so it is. Nature abhors a vacuum, they say. God abhors justice, injustice, excuse me. See, God abhors the absence of a shepherd to deliver and care for his sheep. And that's exactly what we have in 2 Samuel 13. So, yes. Absalom is out of bounds. What he does here is wrong, just like we would say taking matters into your own hands is wrong. Deceiving a man, pretending to be a cult prostitute is wrong. But Absalom is more righteous than David in this scenario, and that is a problem. In fact, we could put it another way. That is to say that the Lord actually stands behind Absalom here. The Lord is standing behind Absalom. What do I mean by that? Certainly, David's still a man after God's own heart. David belongs to the Lord. He's the true king of Israel. But what I mean by this is that the Lord stands behind Absalom as an instrument of his justice to return the evil of Amnon upon his own head. See, when when it says that Absalom had determined these things by the command of his mouth, it wasn't determined just by Absalom, but by the Lord himself. So we got to stop and apply that, right? We, We say this all the time. God is sovereign. Right? 
The Lord is sovereign. We love to say that and throw that out, but we need to understand what that actually means because in historical narrative, we're we're tempted to get to 2 Samuel chapter 13 and just get sucked into this narrative on the ground level and we, we start thinking about why is this person doing that and we start explaining things and we don't really hear or see the Lord in 2 Samuel 13. We don't see his presence and therefore we lose sight of the real protagonist. See, the fact is, Absalom and Amnon, they're not examples of things spinning out of control and getting away from a good God that just wishes things like this wouldn't happen. See, the events in chapter 13, they were predetermined by the Lord as he declared to David in chapter 12. So now he's bringing these things to be. Friends, hear me. God is sovereign over all things. We confess that, we know that, and we accept that. But, but here's how this works. It, it means that he works directly to bring about the good, and he works indirectly to bring about the good out of the evil. So, so God did not apply any extra influence or pressure upon the will of Amnon in order to do something, to cause him to do something that he did not himself desire to do. Amnon freely acted according to his own heart. Therefore, Amnon is the author of his sin. But, and this is the point, the Lord was neither surprised nor impotent when Amnon acted on his sinful desires. But instead, he was working through those very events to bring about his will. So it is for us. As the London Baptist Confession states it, when Amnon, according to his own sinful nature, did what he did, the Lord was working according to his divine pleasure to bring about the good that he had, quote, decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably. So maybe a question, when, I do this every time, because we all love to say God's sovereign, but when we really unpack it, when we think about all the things that that, that means, I always got to come back to this question. Is this the God you serve? Is this the God you know, love, and serve? The God who is sovereign over all things. Because the reality is, I think we have a warped understanding of God's providence today. We say, well, that was really providential, man. The Lord opened up a parking space just when I needed it. Thank God for his providence. Or, you know, I found a little extra cash in my dirty clothes. That's so great. Thank you, Lord, for your providence. You knew just when I needed it. Now, God, is when you're acting providentially. But the rest of the time, when I got to park way out in Timbuktu, where's God? Still providential? Absolutely. Friends, hear me. He is at work always and everywhere for our good. Is that the God you know and serve? I hope so. All right, back to our passage. And when we look at David's failure here, it's going to point us to our greatest need. And in order to fully understand this and appreciate this, we've got to understand this in light of what God's instruction was to David. 
right? Which he had given to his people. What, what do we see this in light of the Torah, in light of the law? We could go to Deuteronomy 17, obviously, and we see clearly that the king was to rule wisely. Well, what does that mean? It means he was to rule according to God's word. He was to know God's word, make a copy of it, to present that copy to a priest, have it sanctioned, authenticated. Then he was to read it every day to renew his mind by it so that his judgments were not his judgments, but God's judgments. This is who the king was supposed to be. Where is that in David in 2 Samuel 13? No. Absalom is more righteous than David. Well, maybe it didn't really explain particulars there. Well, even in matters that not explicitly explained the law of God's judgment, it was meant to be sought. In fact, this is the part I cut out of my sermon. In several places in the Old Testament, they come to Moses with a situation. And Moses is like, I don't know. I don't think the law speaks to that. So what does he do? He inquires of the Lord. And the Lord responds. And they immediately respond in obedience to what the Lord has said. That's who the king was supposed to be. Because God's judgment, friends, is the only righteous judgment. You realize that if if there's a righteous judgment, it's because it's the judgment of God. It doesn't matter whether the man recognizes it or not. If it's a right, true, correct, real judgment is issued, it's God's judgment. And if it's not, it's not righteous. So Israel was to seek the Lord in everything. This was central, pivotal. Listen, it's not like chapter 13 can just happen and the Lord's somewhere else on vacation, not paying attention or just simply doesn't care. In the case of Amnon, there is no lack of clarity, by the way. It was very clear from the Torah what was supposed to happen in regards to Amnon. You want to know what it says? Leviticus chapter 8, verse 9. Here it is. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Pretty clear. Verse 11 of Leviticus 18 says this. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter begotten by your father. She is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Pretty clear. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. But David got angry. That's it. See, the point is, David is distorting the image of God by his failure to act in this story. David's Lord is not partial, but David is. David, like Judah, fears the loss of his son more than he fears the Lord. So he's not walking in his ways. But even so, friends, how impotent David was to actually protect Amnon. Don't you see that? See, David didn't issue the judgment that should have been issued to Amnon, which certainly was a harsh judgment, if not death. And where's Amnon now? Dead. 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 So the question is, how do we apply this? And this is a very difficult application, but it's one we need to remember. The the first application here from this text is this. Fidelity to God must, must, must supersede fidelity to family. 
Now, the problem is, is we know as Christians that these two things often go hand in hand, that the Lord desires us and gives us order in the family and ability to love and display his goodness. So we don't often think of these as having to be put in between each other. But according to the law, this was very, very clear. According to the New Testament, it's very, very clear. Your fidelity to your Father in heaven, it must supersede your fidelity even to your family. Uh, We know that. But we need to hear it again. Deuteronomy 13 makes this clear. In the section, this talks about anyone who might lead God's people away from him, away from their Lord. Look what the Old Testament law says in Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 and 9. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you've not known, neither you nor your fathers. Verse 9. Your hand shall be a first against him to put him to death. Now, obviously, we know the New Testament application of that is is not. But friends, there's plenty of application for us to understand. Fidelity to the Lord supersedes even, yes, fidelity to our own family. And I wouldn't wish this upon anybody. I wouldn't. But let me tell you something. I love you. And, And listen, I know plenty of families where They've actually put in the work, right, to lead their family in family worship. And, and the Lord still doesn't see fit to save one of their children. And there's, there's issues. But, but let me tell you, friends, this is why family worship is the most important thing you will do in your ministry. So that you don't have to come to this place, right? Not necessarily. Lord forbid we ever have to come to this issue. I don't envy David here having to have my son commit this heinous, this heinous issue against my daughter and having to enact justice here. But justice should have been rendered. Because Tamar received injustice. And he's not considering her. He's favoring his son over her and that's the issue. In fact, it's an issue we see all throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? Favoritism for one son for another. Friends, don't forget that Satan's first attack was on the family. He hasn't changed his game plan. It's all throughout the scriptures. He continues to attack the family. But even so, Lord forbid, if you're ever brought to this scenario and you have to choose between fidelity to the Lord, fidelity to your family, it's King Jesus all the way. Fidelity to the Lord supersedes fidelity to our family. You think of Nadab and Abihu, right? Moses said after that event to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all people, I must be glorified. And so Aaron held his peace. We think of 1 Samuel 2, right? The story of Eli and his sons over the Lord, when Eli's honoring them and their wickedness over the Lord. So what's the point? Well, the point is Israel's head is sick and the body cannot long stand with a sick head. Just think about this. The events are recorded for for God's people down the road. You know that, right? First and second Samuel, I think when we enter into the story, we can only think about it in the moment. But the ones hearing this are, are the ones who are a little even further down the road. God's people down the road, they hear this message from 2 Samuel 13. It's a a message that's about the greatest king in Israelite history, bar none. And if the greatest king in Israelite history can decline to look more like a Saul than a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel, if he can devolve into just another Adam who does what is right in his own eyes, if that's the case, then what in the world can Israel do to find health? To find spiritual healing? 
I mean, don't you see how hopeless this is? This is David. A man after God's own heart. We remember David, don't we? David in the wilderness. David inquiring of the Lord. The Lord has always protected him. And David was always trusting in the Lord. He knew the battle belongs to the Lord. You remember that, David? And that was our David. We were with him so long. And now this... Finally, friends, the last application, and really I think it's the, the main thrust of the text, is this. Abandon all hope in man. Just abandon it. Abandon all hope in man. If every other king down the line is compared to David as the greatest king, then what hope do we have in man? Have you got it by now? In the end, every human hero in the Bible, in the Old Testament, ends up needing a hero. Right? Everyone. They all end up hopeless of saving themselves. In other words, David needs a savior. And if David needs a savior, friends, then how much more do we? So if you're an Israelite taking this up before the coming of Christ and and this King David is capable of this type of neglect, then this really should bring you to a place of despair. But the Lord does not leave his people there, does he? See, the Lord was also speaking to these people through the prophets. And you can just take up, I almost, if I sent you reading this week, I would have sent you the entirety of the book of Isaiah, and it's 66 chapters, and I thought that just can't work. But friends, the book of Isaiah... Right around the time of Israel's exile and Judah's impending exile, the Lord through Isaiah reveals God's plan to restore David, Israel, Judah, and all of his people. And so Isaiah 1 opens up and God's people are sick. In fact, that's the very words that are used in Isaiah 1. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. The whole body's sick. Why? Because the head's sick. Even so, despite the failure of God's people, God declares that he will establish a kingdom on earth that will be exalted above over every kingdom. And the nations will flock to it in Isaiah 2. The word of the Lord will go out from that kingdom to the ends of the earth. And apparently it will be cherished. The judgments that flow from this kingdom will be, bring peace upon the earth. The Lord declares that there is a man who will come and establish his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 9, a child will be born, a son will be given. He will establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice. His throne will never be removed. His judgments will be from the Spirit of God, Isaiah chapter 11. His judgments will be in perfect keeping with the will of his Father. He will not judge things by what his eyes see, but by the Spirit. This man, the son of David, by the way, will be a signal to the nations. The nations will inquire of them just as they inquire of the Lord. For his judgments will be God's judgments in all the earth. His kingdom will be the kingdom of heaven in all the earth. This man, like David, will not be identified with the eyes of man. Listen carefully, he will not come in pomp and glory so we would look upon him and say, here he is, that must be the king, the Messiah. Instead, if you can imagine it, this great son of David will be despised and rejected. His own people, even his closest friends, will hide their faces from him, Isaiah 53 tells us. But as he explains, it was the father's will to crush his only begotten son in order to make many righteous. Just think about that in terms of 2 Samuel 13, right? 
David despises the Lord to protect his son. I mean, the reality is every single one of us has despised the Lord in order to protect something that he's given us. So in chapter 13, David's protecting his firstborn son, despising the Lord. And what's the Lord doing? He's unfolding his plan to crush his son, to deliver those who despise him. Church, our passage explains that there is no other way. It's what 2 Samuel 13 illustrates. No man born of Adam could deliver us from our sins. Do you understand that? No man could bear our grief and carry our sorrows because every man bears and carries his own. You are born into this world bearing your grief and carrying your sorrow. Born in a state of sin. I mean, even great King David. He was afflicted for his own sins. How in the world could he be afflicted for mine? David's being crushed before our very eyes for his own iniquities. So how could he be crushed for yours? David's chastisement can't bring us peace. He's being chastised for his own rebellion. His wounds are from his own sickness. There's no healing in them. So we must wonder... Who will be this man who will overcome Adam's curse? If the patriarchs failed, if if all of Israel failed, if great King David failed and failed hard, if Isaiah himself stands before the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 in the throne of God and says, Woe is me, then who is this man who will deliver us from our sin? Listen, Isaiah may not have known the person or time, but here's what Isaiah did know. That no mere man could deliver a sinful people from the hands of a holy God. No mere man could. In fact, I want to close by reading Isaiah 59. Look look at this. This is just amazing. Verses 14 through 20 says this. This is the Lord speaking. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So the truth falls. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it and displeased him that there was no justice. Get this. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. And his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Friends, abandon hope and all of man. There's only one hope for us, and that is if God himself comes. And praise God he did. The God-man Jesus Christ came, and through him we overcome the curse and have life and life eternal. Praise be to God. Would you stand with me as we close? Gracious Father, we are about to sing, uh, all we have is Christ. Lord, that that is the start and the ending of our lives. All we have is Christ, and in Christ we have 
all things. Father, just as if the head is sick, how sick is the body? If the head is righteous, how righteous is the body? Father, thank you for that blessing that you've promised to your people. That it has come in its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Would you help us to sing now with our hearts full of thanksgiving and our hearts full of praise as we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. As we come now to end in our time of invitation, I hope it's clear. Church, for us, the temptation to put your hope in man is very, very evident in all of our lives. Friends, your hope cannot be in your parents' salvation, cannot be in any politicians, which at this point, who's still doing that? Um, friends, it can't be in your church. If you think that just because you believe a, or you attend a Bible-believing church where the word of God is preached, that therefore you're good. No, your hope can't be in that. Your hope must be in Christ, in Christ alone. So maybe you're, you're here as a Christian and you're just, you're just wrestling with fleshing that out. That becomes a, a, a real and present temptation for you to put your hope in all other things and you just want encouragement or accountability or just someone to pray with you we're here we are the family of God we welcome anybody we'd love to pray with you and encourage you in that way but primarily I want to speak to those who may really be doubting whether or not they have a relationship with the Lord or maybe they flat out know they don't friends if you're here this morning Know that if your hope is in your own ability to save you, it'll end up just like David. Things might be going good for a while, but you still have your own iniquity to pay for. Friends, and and we know that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has. And therefore, justice must be wrought out. And, And God, if you notice, is not like David where he allows injustice to go freely. God is a just God, and he will have his justice. It's either going to come in one of two ways. You yourself will pay for your own sins under the wrath of a holy God, or there will be one who stands in your place, whose name is Jesus Christ, who fully received the wrath of God on the cross. Though he did not earn it, though he never deserved it and never sinned, he willingly took upon his father's wrath so that everyone who repents of their sins and believes in him can be covered with his blood and receive his righteousness. Friends, as we said in the prayer, right? If the head is sick, the body is sick. But my, my head is righteous because my head is Jesus. And therefore, because the head is righteous, I know that on the day I meet my Lord, I'll be considered righteous. And the reason that brings tears to my eyes is because I know how wretched I am. And the fact that a holy and just God would consider me righteous based on the life and death and resurrection of another, it overwhelms me with his graciousness. Friends, maybe you've never experienced that. You've never come under the freedom of grace. If you're here this morning and you know that to be the case, Please come grab me by the hand. My wife and I will be at the back of our sanctuary here. Brother Justin will be down front as well as some other men as well. We'd love the opportunity to share with you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to encourage you to turn away from your sins, to repent and to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Please don't leave this place without knowing that your head is righteous.